When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to Performance Anxiety. This week's show welcomes bassist Scott Reeder. Scott's played bass for the legendary desert rock band Caius. He's been part of Across the River, The Obsessed, Sun and Sail Club, and he currently plays in Fireball Ministry. He's produced albums for The Obsessed, Black Math Horseman, and Sun O, among many others. He's toured the world and recorded with some legendary people in some amazing places. He auditioned to replace Jason Newstead in Metallica and has released his own solo album. Check him out at Scott underscore Reader on Twitter and Scott Reader on Instagram. And don't forget to rate and review us on iTunes. Five stars would be nice. Please enjoy my talk with bassist extraordinaire and all-around great guy, Scott Reader. This is Scott Reeder from Fireball Ministry and Caius and the Obsessed and Sun and Sail Club, and you're listening to Performance Anxiety. Oh yeah! All right, I stood my ground. All right. Okay. Yes. The yes. Oh yeah. my! My production skills we- are impeccable. <laughs> we did it. Yeah. Oh, man. Hey, thank you for coming on, man. I really do appreciate it. Oh, thank you. Gosh, it's my pleasure. How you doing? I know you had a little foot issue there. Yeah. It's still going on. Yeah? Oh, man. I saw the, some, some of the pretty gruesome pictures, but... Yeah, it was it was gnarly. I, I've come a long way, but... Well, it's, it's was it... Still- was it from a, a, just something you had to have done, or was it from a, an injury or accident? Or It actually happened on stage with Fireball Ministry. Oh, no. What happened? We, we played two nights in a row at the Viper Room. We were playing with um, Zach Sabbath. Okay. And I think it was the first night. I didn't have to drive. We had a hotel within walking distance. I had a few beers, and I was trying to stomp a hole through that stage. Thought that would be pretty awesome. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and you played stage, barefoot, right? Yeah. Yeah. Stage kicked my ass. Oh. The next morning I woke up, I was like, oh, that probably wasn't very good. <laughs> oh, no. So it, it went on for maybe a year of pain, and then it went away for just a few months. Wow. And... Just a few months ago, it started flaring up, and it felt like, I don't know if you've ever had a horse step on your foot. No, fortunately, no. Good, good. <laughs> well, like that. Oh. Maybe like like stepping on a nail and then pulling it out, that, that kind of I've pain. done that. Not all the time, but 
like after shows when I was using my feet a lot. Um, when the yeah, adrenaline was, wore off. Yeah. Yeah. So it was getting pretty bad. Oh man. And talked to the doctor and, and it, it became like three operations in one. Oh. Um, they, they cut off the bunion. They cut up some, um, toe bones. Oh wow. Short. Yeah. It was gnarly. Oh my so gosh. The, the operation was supposed to take two and a half hours and it took over five hours. Wow. I don't think my wife had had breakfast yet, and you know she took me in. It was like I had to report at five thirty in the morning or something, and I just kept on and on and on. And the horses hadn't been fed. Oh, geez, come a long way. Today is actually the eleventh week anniversary of the surgery. Wow! Oh, gosh. Well, also. Happy belated birthday to your wife. And I know uh, by the time this airs, it'll be very belated. Yeah, you know, sorry for the lag. No uh, problem. No problem. It's like, I'll be fine in about a week or so. <laughs> then, um, how about next week? Not a problem. And I, I, with injuries and, and all, I don't, you know, that that's not a problem. You uh, So you've been playing for quite a while now. Yes. <laughs> you started, I, I, and I know you you were in a, band uh in 85 across the river across, that's yeah across the river and i was listening to your demo tapes today that, that you'd release on youtube they're awesome man they were really good we were on to something. Um, we were really into the SST bands, Black Flag. Okay, uh, yeah. Vibus. We all came out of the punk rock scene. And uh, Mario, our guitar player, who's now in Fatso Jetson. Okay. He had an older brother that was turning him on to records like Mountain and Black Sabbath stuff. So that stuff started creeping into our punk rock roots. And... I was all into Pink Floyd and just playing with, with Mario and Alfredo. And, and for a lot of the time, this kid, Mark Anderson, who was like 15 years old. Oh, gosh. At his house. And his mom, I think, hated us. <laughs> we were like into smoking weed and, and uh, we'd invade their house and <laughs> his bedroom full blast. <laughs> I've got three teenagers now. I can, I can appreciate that end of it now. <laughs> I could appreciate your end of it back then, but now, yeah, yeah, I know. Yeah, we were about. we were still learning our instruments. Well, who's not still learning their instrument? I'm sure Stanley Clark's still learning his <laughs> instrument. You know. Yeah, but we were just learning how to play and and actually learning how to jam a little bit. And and um, there weren't a whole lot of clubs that would want to take a bunch of weirdos and. <laughs> <laughs> let us take mushrooms or whatever and <laughs> and jam for a couple hours. So our friend Dave Travis, whose sister Abby, I don't know if you've heard of Abby Travis, great bassist. She was in the okay. Go-Go's recently. She played with Cher. She okay. played in the Bangles. Um, she's got a project now called Sumo Princess with um, Gene Troutman, who was in Queens of the Stone Age and the Miracle Workers back in the day. Right, right, yeah. Um Anyway, her, her brother, Dave, brought out a generator 
to the desert and we played our we, we played a few of his parties out in LA but okay. he was the guy that brought the generator to the desert and had this beautiful party and spawned an entire genre of music yeah it it was beautiful mario eventually got a generator um, so instead of practicing in the garage and annoying the neighbors and having the cops come over all the time <laughs> We could just take this generator out in the middle of the desert. We'd go out in the middle of the night with our girls and a couple of friends, drink some beers, smoke a couple of joints, and just jam as long as we wanted. And uh, That's awesome. Through some parties, the parties started getting bigger and bigger. I moved out of the desert, oh gosh, probably 1987. And the parties were just getting bigger and bigger and it was getting stupid. Uh, <laughs> after I joined IS, I played just a couple. The last one I played, uh, I think my sister-in-law drove up and she said, there's somebody charging admission down the road. Oh, my gosh. Oh, fuck. And I, I walked down there and, and I was complaining, hey, this is supposed to be free, man. And this guy opened up his coat and had a gun. Oh. And... So it's private property. And, <laughs> okay. But I'll charge you to let you on. <laughs> yeah, that was the last one I ever played. It wow. just got out of control. That's crazy. Yeah. Man. But in those early days when it was just us and our girls and a couple of friends, it was so awesome just to be out there under the stars. And it didn't matter if there was anybody there or not. We were just having fun, you know. So maybe you can help me. With, with a question that I've had and, and a bunch of people that I know have. Um, desert rock and stoner metal, and there are what seems to be now an unlimited amount of subgenres. Can, can you're, you're in the scene. Can you differentiate between them? Because honestly, I, I swear, I think some of these bands are making up their own genres and they're the only band in that genre. Yeah, I have no idea. I wouldn't listen to some band go, Oh man, stoner metal! I, I have no idea. That's doom. I mean, That's stoner. It's Black Sabbath or Monster Magnet. Yeah, it, the, the the term stoner rock I don't think was coined until after we broke up, and <laughs> it, it was it, it was nice when we were around. Um, we we broke up in nineteen ninety five, um, but when we were on the road, we would go to record stores and you knew they were confused about what shelf, what section to put our <laughs> CD in or whatever. Uh, sometimes it would be in the punk section and we'd be like, yeah. Sometimes it would be on the metal shelf and we would actually take our record and put it in the punk section. <laughs> and it, it was nice that it was kind of ambiguous, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And it, it's something that, you know, anybody who basically likes just about any genre of, of heavier music can get into. And I, I'll be honest with you. I'm I'm kind of a latecomer to to Caius, um, and is a it's a stupid the stupidest story. So I, I'm here to get stories from you, but I'll give you a really dumb story here. Maybe okay. kind of prime the pump here. Um, I I remember hearing about the band Caius because my prime days of collecting music and listening and, and just grabbing whatever music I can was in college, which was in the er, very early nineties. Yeah. So it was prime time for you guys. And, um, 
I'd heard about you, but I didn't. I hadn't heard any music, and I was getting Kaya's confused with some heavy metal band, just like 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 a like uh, Creator or or, or uh, Crocus or something. And I was getting yeah. I was getting you guys confused. I remember hearing Queens of the Stone Age for the first time, and like, and somebody had told me, "Oh, the the singer and guitarist is from Kaya's. You should check him out." That's kind of a weird switch. He's going from the, this, this like thrash metal to, to yeah. this, this Black Sabbath kind of sound. That's a very strange switch. I'm gonna have to listen to that. Got that a bit back in the day. So Brokers. yeah, yeah, I don't, I don't, and that, that may not even been the bands, but I remember thinking that's that they're, they're more of a thrash metal band. That's kind of a strange uh, switch from that. So, uh, so unfortunately, but, I missed out on on uh, seeing you guys and and getting a bunch of your stuff until a little bit later on, and. Um, yeah. I'm, you know that's to my detriment, but I'm I'm loving it now. I've 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 loved Kai's for a while now, but you do. Well, I don't know how old you are, but it was a long time ago. Oh, mid forties. So I'm getting into mid fifties. Oh man, so, so we're not too too far apart. But um, and I I hate to do this, but I know I'm going to be asking you some questions you've you answered about a hundred times in interviews. But you know, got I got to ask some of them. <laughs> so, yep. Yep. Um. Has bass always been your instrument, or did you start off something? I know a lot of musicians start off playing one thing and then just get sidetracked into the instrument they end up making a living with. Yeah, I started off playing drums. Okay. Uh, when I was four, I built a. I was really into the Beatles. Ringo Starr was it. Oh man! Uh, yeah. For Christmas on my when I was four, I think um, I got the first Sesame Street record. And okay. Beatles Revolver. Oh. And Beatles Revolver was just Godhead. So you got those on the same birthday? Christmas. Oh, Christmas, I mean. Sorry. So you yep. got those as gifts on the same day? That's. Your parents were awesome, I got to tell you. <laughs> Man. My dad was a guitar player, uh, really great guitar player. He also played banjo. Oh, wow. uh, his dream was to play the Grand Ole Opry. Oh, really? Uh, oh, that's awesome. Like, Grandpa, on my mom's side, uh, was a really great jazz guitarist. And my grandparents on my dad's side were um, church-going, organ-playing. My my grandpa would play the violin. Or no, he, he would play a saw with oh, a violin bow. Yes. It was amazing. That is awesome. So I had the religious side, you know, on, on my dad's side. And then my mom's parents were atheists. Okay. And Jack loving part, you know, cocktail party throwing heathens. <laughs> yeah. And so I got both of those worlds all the time. That's it. So that's all my grandparents are musicians. So you've got it on both sides. It's basically, it's just in your blood. Yeah. So I started playing drums. I, I got a drum set on my fifth birthday. Uh, started playing in punk bands uh, pretty early high school, around 1981. Okay. Um, and then I was in this band called Dead Issue, and uh, the bass player quit. And we couldn't find another guy that was into punk rock, but we found Alfredo Hernandez, who later played in Caius uh, across the river, yeah. and later Queens of the Stone Age. Um. And that was it. I I started pretty fast, just playing along with records, 
probably Black Flag, Circle Jerks, Descendants, T.S.O.L. Um, oh man, yeah. It was a little bit advanced. Mike Watt is one of my base, you know, base heroes. Oh yeah, yeah. He's amazing. That was a little advanced at that point. <laughs> <laughs> well, and and it's you just you picked up the bass, but you 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 kind of play it in in an odd way. So. You play, well, let's see, you play a left-handed bass, but I just strung- happen to have one here. Oh, there it is. Does that show up like a left-handed bass or a right-handed bass? Um, left-handed. Okay. So I didn't know if it was reversed. <laughs> uh, it's got the, the fat string on the bottom, and it just comes from playing my dad's stuff. You know, he had right-handed guitars, and I would just flip it over, and the, the big string ends up at the bottom. So, so it's but now the one you're playing now is designed for a left-handed player, but it's strung for a right-handed player. Correct, man. Because when I had, well, I've got a few bases hanging up here. They're, they're all lefties, but when I would flip over this this first Rickenbacker that I had, it was a fake Rickenbacker, <laughs> a righty, and the knobs would be right here and. You're playing here, and all the knobs are twisting, so I'd have to put duct tape over all the knobs. Oh, then the, the the horn would be on the wrong side, so I couldn't get to the top frets. Okay, yeah, yeah. So you had limited movement on, of your of your fretting arm there, of your fret hand. Yeah. So so by the time I got a real lefty bass, which is hanging right up there, my my first real Rickenbacker lefty, 1975. I took it to the factory one time to get a replacement screw, and this guy opened the case, and he was like, whoa. <laughs> he said, he, he looked up the serial number. He said, this is 1975. Paul McCartney has one. You have one, and that might be it. Whoa. Oh, my god! I don't know if that's true, <laughs> but that, that's coming factory direct. That Hey, you know? that you know what? I'll, I'll take that from the factory. That, and even if not, it sounds, it's a great story. Pretty crazy. So that is um, wow. That's pretty I got good. a little sidetracked there. I don't even know what the original question. Was. Oh, um, yeah, yeah, me too. Uh, I guess we we're just talking about how you you started to pick up the bass and you started learning uh, punk songs. But yeah. I was wondering how difficult it was since you you play the strings are backwards for you. How how hard is it to learn? Noodling around on my dad's guitars and my grandpa's guitars. I think one of the first riffs I learned to play was. B-52's Rock Lobster. <laughs> you know. Oh, man. Um, so it was already, uh, the damage had already been done. Yeah. So when I got that lefty Rickenbacker, I had to flip the strings over. and um, I never had the nut redone, I don't think. I'm, I'm trying to see it from here. But I had, I had wire ties like woven through the strings right here to keep the strings from popping out of the, the notches on the nut. Oh, really? oh my gosh. It's worn that much, huh? Yeah. Wow. Oh, well, I guess, I guess it's not even worn. It's just since that's not designed to fit that string, I guess. Right. No, <laughs> I guess that would make more sense. Man. And I didn't have the money to have some guy, you know, some customizer guy fix it. So, you were in uh, across the river, and and then you moved on to the obsessed. How did you how did you uh, meet up with those guys and, and get involved with them?
Across the River did some shows with St. Vitus, which was a huge deal for us. We're like, oh, we've made it now. <laughs> We're playing St. Vitus at the Anti-Club in Hollywood. Um, on my 21st birthday, uh, we had a gig set up in the desert with St. Vitus and DRI. Oh, my gosh, yeah. And um, they showed up with this new singer, Scott Weinrich. And he got out of their van with leather pants and conchos. And <laughs> it, was, it was on May 16th, 1986, my 21st birthday. Wow. And we played this gig together, and, and we, we hit it off that night. And maybe a month later, we played a generator party out in Ventura. Okay. And we got there pretty early, and, and Wino was there. And he's all, hey, man, let's jam. And he picked up somebody's guitar. And I played, I actually played drums that day. And Mario Lolly played bass. And we jammed a while before a bunch of people showed up. And uh, totally hit it off that day. And we were just like, man, we got to do a band someday. So flash forward maybe a, maybe two years we kind of lost touch. Okay. Um, I'd moved out to L.A. Okay, this is weird. I forgot about this story. <laughs> uh, My favorite part of this show. I won an MTV contest oh. just after my wife and I had gotten married. I, I got a job at a studio in, in Hollywood. We made the move from the desert out to L.A. We got out of the desert. Okay. So... I think the first month we were there, um, I won this MTV contest where you call in this phone number. I won a Learjet trip to Arizona to see U2 and B.B. King (laughs) at Sun Devil Stadium. It was when they were filming Rattle and Hum. You remember that? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Wow. Uh, So they flashed my name on MTV, Scott Reeder of North Hollywood. And Wino saw that on, on TV. And he went digging through a trunk or something and and found the number for my in-laws. That was like my last known (laughs) phone number. Oh, wow. And finally tracked me down. And we started jamming in 87, right after that. And we we jammed for years. Oh, man. And and then he started touring in Europe with St. Vitus. And they got pretty big over there. They were doing really well. Um, He was over there when the wall was coming down in Berlin. Oh, wow. Um, so he put out some old Obsessed recordings. And the record label said, okay, where's the band? Oh. And so I eventually ended up in the band. Oh, wow. And did the first tour of the new Obsessed in Europe. And at the end of the tour, we ended up in Berlin and recorded an album, Lunar Womb. Recorded okay. the whole thing and mixed in five days. Oh, jeez! Yeah, it was crazy. I'm Man. so proud of that album. It, it was my first production credit on any album. So, how did you? How did that come about? Did, was it just a financial thing that they knew you'd come from? Because you had, you had been working at a for and doing jingles before that, right? Yeah, yeah. I worked at a jingle house in in L.A. right after I got married in '87. Uh, a lot of film soundtrack stuff. Okay. And yeah, then this band thing came up 
and I had to be gone for I think a month. And I, I was okay. so focused on my engineering career at the studio, and I told my wife, you know, you got this <laughs> off. What do you think? And she said, I fell in love with you when you were this bass player. You got to go for it. We'll make ends meet somehow. That's awesome. And that was it. Huge turning point in my life, you know. And you guys have been married how long now? Um, coming up on thirty-one years. Wow! Oct- in October, right? <laughs> Yeah, October 4th. Yeah, my an- wedding anniversary is October 6th. Awesome. Yeah, October weddings, they're, they're forever, apparently. <laughs> How long have you been married? Uh, this year, it will be 17 years. Wow. So, yeah. Not, not, years. Not, yeah, not, uh, not as far as you guys, but I'm confident we're going to make it. So. <laughs> so, all right, so. You you were working at the Jungle House. You get this uh, this opportunity to go over and tour with the Obsessed, and you do an album, an entire album in five days, and you produced it. Was insane. it. it what's that? And you produced it. Yeah, me and Wino co-produced it, and we had our friend who was our live sound guy at engineer, Matthias Schneeberger. <laughs> That's a great crazy. name. We called him Schneeby. <laughs> yeah, we knocked so, it out so fast. There were some weird sound collages in there. I'd done some sound design stuff back at the the Jingle House. And they locked me in the studio one night, and I created this whole thing that was supposed to sound like you're inside the womb with slow-motion water gurgling and heartbeat. <laughs> and oh, wow. That is cool. There were no drugs involved. <laughs> <laughs> so now did they do that because they knew you had the production experience and, or because money was tight or both or neither? What being trusted by the record label? Oh uh, yeah, get that, or, and, and being trusted by the band to to do the production work. Well, yeah, the band knew what I was doing. I mean, I snuck them into the studio where I was working. Oops, you know. <laughs> um, and we we put out a couple of songs that we we cut in there, so they knew what I was capable of. That's um, awesome. So it, it was great to be trusted. I remember. I mean, normally in those days, you would mix down to half inch. And to, to fit that sound design piece in, there had to be all these edits. And I was going to you know, mix everything to half inch and then make all these cuts on the half inch tape. Okay. So you know, if you screw up, there's always a backup. But they didn't have a half inch machine. It was going straight to that. Oh. Audio, this little cassette. They don't even make them anymore. Right, think. right. Um, so I had to cut the two inch tape. Which oh. is pretty crazy. Yeah, that, that's. And the engineer who was in charge of the thing was like, "Are you sure about this?" <laughs> like, did I do this all the time in Hollywood? <laughs> and there was no fresh razor blade. They were all like all nicked no. up, and it was like a big <laughs> joke. I was trying to shop around the neighborhood, going to grocery stores. I need, and it's in Germany. I'm like, I need a razor blade. You know. <laughs> And they're thinking they you're there to, you know, slice some throats or something. Yeah, and they they bring me a package of disposable razors. I'm like, no. <laughs> so I was totally freaking out on getting a clean razor blade. And they, they finally produced a clean razor blade, and it was time to do the edits. And we were fucked up out of our minds. I, I rocked the reels, got the spots marked. I made the first cut, 
And I grabbed the tape and just crumpled it up and went running down the hallway and it's spilling out on the floor. And the engineer's like, what the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, I found the other mark. I spliced it together, hit play. It was perfect. Oh, wow. Yeah. Man. <laughs> that was one of, my, one of my favorite studio memories of all time. I probably took a, a few years off of Schneeby's life. I'm very sorry for that. <laughs> well, we'll have to make sure he gets a copy of this so he can hear it. So, um, let me go. I want to go back a little bit to uh, before all of this occurred because I'm reading my notes now, and you know that that helps when I'm talking to people. Uh, who who were your influences, and have they broadened or changed at all as as you've grown as a bass player? Influences as far as bass. As far as bass, yeah. Um, my earliest influences, I would say, would be Chuck Dukowski from Black Flag, and Mike Watt from the Minutemen. Okay, those were the big ones. Um, Mike Roach from TSOL. Okay, I, yeah. I liked a lot of the, the melodic stuff he was doing, adding little chords. Just you know, little embellishments and stuff right um for for chuck dukowski it was just that energy my first concert was cheap trick my brother took me to in 1980 second concert was rush moving pictures in las vegas my third show was black flag it it was actually henry's very first show was a matinee um at the cuckoo's nest oh wow i think it was september 9th 1980 maybe I, i don't remember the exact date but um Man, got to band and uh, my my band was actually supposed to play that day. I was playing drums in this band called Subservice before Dead Issue, and I ended up stashing my. They they showed up late to sound check for this matinee, so we got cut from the bill, and I stashed my drums in the Black Flag van. Henry, <laughs> it was his very first show, and he was the new guy that had to help this kid put his drums in the truck. I, I think I was. Oh, jeez. I was probably sixteen or seventeen. Oh my gosh! But Chuck's Jeez. energy it just looked so cathartic, just so much energy. It, it looked like he was exercising any aggression, any demon. Yeah, rid of it, you know. And, oh. and when I switched over to bass, I held on to that, and to this day, I, I try to try to put out that energy and, and get rid of whatever pent up shit is you know yeah torment you, if any yeah and unfortunately it's in my fucked up foot right now yeah I was <laughs> unfortunately that, 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 that show with fireball ministry i was just trying to stop a hole in that stage and and uh yeah it's stage back. one it's got zero yeah oh man so how did you get involved with kaius from the obsessed um so we were playing hollywood a lot and I'm trying to remember exactly how I I met those guys because they're a lot younger. Josh and Brant were eight years younger. Oh wow! 
my friend Garth, who used to be my neighbor, was good friends with those guys. And he actually introduced me to Brant. And, you know, they, they would come to some of our stuff, and I'd check them out. And, and I, I had a copy of their, their first record, Wretch, which was okay. I wasn't a huge fan, but I was stoked right. that somebody from the desert was actually getting out there and, and doing something, you know? Yeah. Instead of just stewing in the desert, <laughs> rotting. Yeah. And so Brant asked me if, if we would do a tour with them on the West Coast. And it, it ended up being Caius, The Obsessed, and I don't know if you've heard of Wool. It was the Franz brothers who played in Scream with Dave Grohl. Okay. Just before that. Okay. Uh, it also had Al from Concrete Blonde. Oh, really? Peter Moffat, who was in Government Issue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was like... That's wild. You know, alternative punk supergroup. Yeah, holy I crap. I produced their first single, too. I, I, I did a couple songs with those guys. Oh, cool. Um, so, yeah, we, we started up... I don't remember the, the route of the tour... But it was awesome. Uh, but some of the shows, there was nobody there. There, there was literally <laughs> the sound guy at the club and the bartender. Oh, man. It was one of those nights that uh, A&R guy from New York came out to see us. <laughs> and there was nobody in the club. Oh, geez. Three awesome bands. And, and nobody, nobody there. there. Ah, These days, if we could get those three bands back together, it'd be like... Oh, <laughs> It'd be like the monsters of desert rock. That'd be awesome. Oh my uh, gosh. So, all right. So, so you're touring with them. Yeah. So the transition into Caius comes from that tour. Um, we ended up in Seattle. Um, Chris Novoselic and Dave Grohl were at the last show. And Chris said that his birthday was the next day and invited us over to a barbecue at his house. Oh, cool. And this is, this is, um, I'm, I'm thinking this is 92. Yeah, this is 1992. Oh, so this so Nirvana's just, yeah, they're blowing up at this point. Yeah. And so he invites us to his house. Turns out we share a birthday. Turns oh. out not only do we share the day, we share the year. He's <laughs> to this day, the only person I've ever met that was born on the exact same day. Wow. He was born in Compton, and I was born just down the road in Pomona. Oh, my gosh. That's crazy. And I remember the first time I met him when Nirvana played at the, the Roxy, just before Nevermind came out. And he's playing barefoot, and <laughs> he seemed familiar to me. And I thought maybe we'd met through SST a few years before or something, and and we were going through all these people, and you know, we we'd never met before, but it, we just had that feeling, you know. So anyway, uh, I opted out of the 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 birthday party. I wanted to get home. <laughs> okay. I always want to get home. Well, you're and, married, right? You you're married at this point, right? So yeah, yeah, yeah. My wife's been sense. around for everything. Um. So the Caius guys, we actually swapped bass players for the ride home. Okay. Nick wanted to stay for the party and I wanted to get home. So I jumped in the Caius van 
and Nick jumped in the obsessed van. And so we're driving for like a half an hour and, and they hit me up. They, they said, man, things are pretty rough right now. You know, Nick was, don't want to get into it really, but he yeah. was being crazy in those days and beat up a couple of sound men. Oh, geez. And they asked if I would join and I said, oh man, I'm honored to be considered, but Columbia Records is checking us out and it looks like we're going to get a deal with Columbia and, and you know, I, I got to stay the course. Yeah. Yeah. And so they were cool with that. That okay. night, um, it, it was on May 16th going into the 17th. We stopped at Denny's. They used to have the, the free birthday dinner. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. The good old days. Yeah. <laughs> and we, we stopped um, on my birthday just before midnight. And after midnight, it was Josh's birthday. His was the 17th. <laughs> and we oh, both man. got our meal for free. It was like, yeah. nice. <laughs> <laughs> That's the greatest meal ever. <laughs> uh, so anyway, maybe two or three months later, I got a call from Brant. And he said, dude, I know you don't want to join permanently, but we kicked Nick out. And we've got some pretty crazy shows coming up. And if you could just fill in. It'd be awesome. Okay. Um, so I was all, fuck yeah, I, I'd be honored. Yeah. They had the the record. Actually, they had a video shoot coming up for Green Machine. That was actually my first performance, quote unquote. Okay. With Caius. Um, 129 degree heat outside. God. Trying to do my barefoot thing on asphalt. Oh, there, man. There was a crew there. They would put ice down on the the asphalt god and the, the the cameraman actually had a heat stroke he what? it was the cam operator he went down and he was convulsing and vomiting we got through that my first actual show was the record release party for blues for the red sun which i didn't play on but you know that, that right. was my first gig so let me and ask you a question about that if um I hate interrupting but no that makes that that kind of sparked something so they had already recorded this album and you had to learn these songs but you you play the bass basically upside down compared to nick so how hard was it to learn those songs uh and playing in in the unconventional way that you play yeah the songs are basic okay i mean the riff on thumb is like two notes <laughs> you know, do that for five minutes and then go into this other thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Everything was was easy, but the hard part was probably one of their best features. The tuning was wavering all over the place. I'd, I'd get in tune for one song and learn that, and then the next song comes up, and it's like a half a step off or, or somewhere in the middle between notes. Jeez. <laughs> oh, from what I was told, they didn't own tuners, which is true. Oh, gosh. And their their tuning drifted lower and lower. <laughs> so it was all hovering around C. Oh, know, normally, wow. O strings and E. Right. It, it went down a few steps to, to C. Jeez. Uh, 
so my first gig was was that record release party and still no tuners i i had a tuner <laughs> but josh didn't oh we don't need and tuners so the 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 first you know we get up on stage and the crowd's going crazy and the the first thing is tuning full blast ridiculous that sounds like a huge rock star moment though they just made all this <laughs> big noise it's not really meaning anything but you're looking yeah. at each other yeah it felt so stupid spinal tap so, that, so i was like no 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 I, we're getting tuners dude <laughs> so the, the second show we opened for body count during the whole cop killer thing oh wow jeez that how did was, that go that was a trip um man that you know, was, was i remember that being a huge yeah huge controversy at the time and and then, you know, I remember band, you know, people not playing the song, all kinds of protests. But I also remember, yeah. you know, Soundgarden covering that song that year at Lollapalooza. And oh, I as, didn't know that. Yeah. It was, in fact, I went to two Lollapaloozas, 92 and 94. So I got to see Soundgarden and then and Pearl Jam. And then the next time I went and saw Pumpkins and the Beastie Boys and all that. But yeah. Soundgarden covered uh, Cop Killer. And it was it was just insane. So, and, and nobody's expecting it because at that time, you know, boots weren't widely distributed. You couldn't just go on YouTube and find whatever the last night's uh, set list was. So they come out and they start screaming, cop killer, better you than me. And I'm like, what the hell? So I could only imagine actually being on tour with these. Now, did you tour with them or was it just that one? No, it's the one off in Santa Barbara. Oh, my gosh. What was what was the uh, the crowd like there? It was a lot of college kids, you know, and it was a weird mix of bands. I think there were four bands. Um, it was a great show. That was awesome. Well, anything, you know, with body counts got to be just crazy. That, that's We did a, a convention thing right after that. We played the Foundations Forum just a few weeks after that. And I was doing a press thing and I ended up sitting next to Ice-T in this room full of press people. I was just waiting for my turn to do some press. And he did an interview sitting right next to me. And, and he's all, like my man here, Scott from Caius. Yeah. <laughs> That's so he, awesome. Cool. So you, you finally you end up with Caius. And then you started, uh, you're on two albums with Caius, correct? Yep. All right. And then a couple EPs and stuff like that. Yeah, a bunch of little odds and ends. So the, the big Kai's album that that everybody seems to be familiar with and everybody that that I've spoken with loves is Welcome to Sky Valley. And I just refreshed myself with it again. It'd been a little while since I'd heard it, but I refreshed myself again with it this this afternoon and man, that's the sound on that is just incredible. I mean, I can't even really describe it because it's, it's just, you have to hear it. It's, um, yeah, you can definitely tell that it, it it's, it, how influential it is hearing bands now. So, and if you go for, on. For bass player, it was a dream. I can't even describe how lucky I was, 
you know, Josh is a great guitar player, but there was a lot of space that I could fill up. It, it, it couldn't have been better. We tried to keep things raw, so it wasn't like, you know, bass way down here and then all these glorious guitar overdubs yeah. on top. Well, it sounds uh, very organic. Yeah. Now, so when you went into recording... And especially um, Joe Barisi, the, the engineer, um, you know, Chris kept the, the the record company away. Yeah, we called him the shit shield, <laughs> and he let us do our thing, you know. And, and Joe Barisi has the ear, and the there were mics all over the room. The the, the ambient mics all over Sound City were just mind blowing. Like, wow, they have this many channels in this console. Um, that was a huge part of it was just the ambience of that room. When you guys went in to record that, did you have uh, songs already set up, or was it a lot of jamming and creation in the studio? It was pretty loose on that record. Um, there are so many takes of some of the songs. I, I remember we we really tweaked out on getting the tones for three days. <sighs> Never done that. It was driving me crazy because I came from working on jingles where – you plug everything in and you do your little bit and it's done. Yeah. And the ad client gives it a thumbs up and everybody goes home <laughs> and you hear it on TV in a couple of days. Time's money. Yeah. So that was the recording environment that I was used to. So spending three days on tones was driving me nuts. <laughs> uh, I remember they, they were actually getting the tapes up from Blues for the Red Sun and comparing guitar tones and, and oh, like playing the tape and then A being it with Josh playing along and it wasn't quite matching up and, and oh. it was just getting too tweaky for me. Wow. And I asked Josh, did you have all these pedals lined up before? Because it doesn't sound like there's anything on. He said, no, but they're all in bypass mode. I said, yeah, but all these, you know, the signals turning all these corners, going through all these cables and the yeah. circuitry and the pedals, even though they're turned off. And finally, they they unplugged all the pedals, plugged straight in, and boom, it, it matched perfectly. And we finally started rolling on the third night. Um, we had a bunch of candles around the studio. We smoked a bunch of weed, had some friends over, and we blasted through most of the songs and oh it felt so good <laughs> just it, it felt like we were almost done on that third night and i came in the next morning and chris is sitting at the console and he's shaking his head and i'm all dude what's up he's all the the bass and the guitar tones aren't quite meshing wow <laughs> <laughs> um, but the performances were untouchable that that first night and oh, we actually you know we, we did a bunch of takes after that but we actually went back to that first night's recording mm -hmm. and on a couple of songs we just went Ramon style we panned the bass to one side pan the guitar to the other side vocal straight up the middle boom oh man it, there you go. it was to me it was a punk rock record you know yeah it's that's well and that's it seems like it's a your, your production history was almost invaluable at that point because they would if three days to get to the point and they just well just unplug everything and plug straight yeah. in they, they could have been going forever 
Yeah. It's <laughs> simple. Yeah. So the song Demon Cleaner is on that album. Yep. And you ended up on stage with Tool doing that song several years later. How did that happen? Um, right as Caius broke up, I think it was September or October of 95. And right off the bat, I got a call from Jason Newstead. And okay. he invited my wife and I up to his place to just have some fun. He said, man, you got to get your head out of this and have some fun. So he flew us up to the Bay Area oh, cool. and wanted to do some recording, just fuck around and have fun. Um, he got this guitar player that I'd never heard of at the time, Devin Townsend. I love Devin Townsend. Oh, he is oh, a super genius. He is. I get to see him a lot these days. Was this was this the the irate sessions? It was the shortly ir- after that. Okay. This thing was Tree of the Sun on one side had a couple of my songs, and then um, Blastula and the Satanatones <laughs> on side B of this cassette that was more like. <laughs> You know, growly vocals, Cookie Monster. Rah, rah. There was actually a song about cookies with okay. each guy doing Cookie Monster vocals. <laughs> so it's me on regular four-string bass. Jason, I think, played a baritone Hagstrom that was a little, little higher. Like he was playing the mid-range. Okay. And then Devin playing this beautiful atmospheric guitar stuff. And um, I got Dale Crover to play drums. We had just been on tour with the Melvins. Oh my gosh. And uh, it was so fun. Now, is, it, is this something that, that has been released or is this something that's just a private collection for you guys now? It was never released. Oh, man. You know, in those days, Metallica didn't want him putting stuff out. He, yeah. he got into a lot of heat over it and it, it's probably what eventually, you know, not, not our project specifically, but, but them not wanting him to put out other stuff right. led to him leaving the band. Because, I mean, I would pay upwards of like 10 to $20 for that. <laughs> <laughs> Directly to uh, you. If you're ever here, I have it on my computer. Oh, my gosh. Um, I will make my way there. Okay. Uh, so, anyway, at the same time, I get a call from Matt Marshall, Tool's A&R guy, just before I'm leaving on this weekend and asks if I'd be interested in trying out for tool. Wow. Like, uh, yeah. (laughs) So when I got home, I think I had maybe two days to prepare. Oh, jeez. I'd, I'd spoken with Maynard right before I left and he gave me a list of like four songs to learn it was like Sober, Prison Sex, Undertow. I can't remember what else. So, yeah, I went out to L.A. for three days and jammed with those guys. Oh, wow. And we, we did a lot of jamming. The first day, um, it was so fun. It, it sounded so good. It, it, it felt good playing with those guys. First day at the end, they gave me this cassette, and Maynard warned me, if you bootleg this cassette, there's little gaps in it, and we'll know who you are. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but oh it was, my gosh! 
it was some of the songs that they'd been working on with Paul D'Amour for Anima. Okay. Um, so then they asked me if I want to go to a party at Timothy Leary's house that night. Oh my gosh. It's like, ah, yeah. I, I felt like I was being tested, you know, yeah. are you going to be the party guy or are you going to do your homework? So I, I went back to that studio where I'd been working and did my homework and I learned eulogy for the oh. next day, which is wow. my favorite song of all time. Um, so yeah, I went back the next day and nailed eulogy and awesome. did some more jam. So we, we hung out for three days and, and, uh, at the end, they said, man, it's down to you and this guy from England from this band called Peach. Yep. And we'll let you know on Halloween. So man, That's a, such a tool thing to do. I know. Bastards. <laughs> <laughs> so Halloween, I'm waiting by the phone. They, they finally called and they said, man, we've been reviewing the tapes and it was so close. Um, but Justin just oozes tool and it was a difficult decision but you know we'll do something in the future and so sure enough shortly after that i got that call to come out and play at the palladium and do demon cleaner caius that's so. awesome man that's that's uh so i mean it's that's still a pretty cool ending to, uh, to that story yeah so and we were supposed to do this project um it was supposed to be me and maynard and adam and Dale Crover, that was going to be called Pussifer. And okay, Maynard ran with it later on, and, and yeah. it's got a revolving cast of characters. Maybe I'll get invited someday. Hey, who knows? <laughs> well, hopefully. So, speaking of trying out for bases, you ended up um, trying out to replace Jason mm. uh, uh, after uh, oh god, what which 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 was the, was it the Reload album was his last or is it uh, some kind of well? I'm trying to remember uh, right now because th- that period's kind of a blur as far as yeah Metallica me too. for me. But but they, you were recording the some kind of monster. They were doing they're going through therapy and Jason just kind of never showed up. And I know that yeah, they it wasn't part of that at all. I, I think it was after Load stuff Reload. Um. And so they they invited you and a, like two other guys out to to try out. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. I was out just outside this room um, on a rainy morning, uh, scooping up some wet, rotten hay okay. so the horses wouldn't get. <laughs> and my wife came out in her PJs, holding the phone. She's kind of rolling her eyes, going, um, it "Says it's Lars Ulrich." But she thought it was Maynard because Maynard had had pranked us a few times, you know. Oh, geez. And uh, I get on the phone and oh, holy shit, it's it's fucking Lars Ulrich. <laughs> and uh, yeah, he, he said we've got four guys that we want to try out, and you're one of them. Uh, I guess he asked Josh Homme who the next guy should be. And Josh was just like, of course, Scott Reeder. Yeah. So that was it. Well, and thank you uh, for, you, you just settled it. I was never, ever sure how to pronounce Josh's last name. I was, that was going to be one of my last questions for you, but you, you just answered Tommy. that for me. Yep. All right. So they flew me up and spent a couple of days at the studio while they were recording some kind of monster. And 
there wasn't one moment where there wasn't a TV or, or you know, whatever TV camera, two cameras and a boom microphone over my head. God. Trying to have a normal conversation, you know. Yeah. So it was a little unnerving. I wasn't used to that. And, <laughs> you know, I was being kind of reserved and being careful what I said. And, um, Understandably so. Fun. What's that? Understandably so, because, you know. That was weird. That's that's kind of the weirdest job interview I've ever heard of. Yeah, it was crazy. Um, and so, then they had that performance coach Phil there. Yeah, it was in the middle of everything. Uh, yeah, I actually just interviewed a Bob Rock, and we were talking about that, and it, he's got some funny stories about that. But yeah, it was did crazy. They, it, before you went up there, did they tell you that all that was going on? No. Oh my god! I, I no, yeah. So you just walked right into the into the therapy session that was being recorded yeah. for a movie. Yeah, That's... it was pretty crazy. Um, so I learned maybe twenty songs. I had about a week to learn some stuff. God, uh, that doesn't seem like a whole lot of time to learn like twenty songs. No, and those songs are a bitch. Yeah, <laughs> most of them. I mean, a lot of them I I knew from osmosis. Yeah, kind of. <laughs> um, so it was pretty intense. I remember the first morning sitting around that conference table and them spelling out what they wanted to accomplish. And, and, um, finally James said, feel like jamming them all. Fuck. Yeah. yeah. So we went in and played a bunch of stuff. I, I think the first song we played was fuel. And I jumped up on the mic with Kirk singing the background vocals. And when the song was done, James was like, man, I haven't heard those harmonies in a long time. Oh, oh man. So you had yes. to feel, yeah, you had to feel good about that. I got this one in the bag. <laughs> <laughs> oh, um, man. So it was an awesome day, that first day. And they had their Christmas party that night. Oh, they cool. had a bowling alley blocked out. And their whole organization took over this bowling alley. There was open bar. Oh, man. Um, and then, yeah, the next day they were working on the album and I'm sitting on the couch next to James and all of a sudden somebody hands him a microphone and they start rolling tape and he's shouting out vocals right next to me. Oh, and geez. when the tape stopped, I'm all, is it okay if I'm in here? He's all, if it wasn't, I'd tell you to get the fuck out. <laughs> <laughs> so that was pretty crazy sitting next to James while he's actually cutting vocals for the album. And then the, the weirdest part of that whole thing, um, James was looking for lyric ideas on this song. I think it was about the Napster backlash. Okay. Which was going on at that point. Yeah. And God damn it, Lars was correct. It, it screwed everybody up. It, it yeah. turned the whole industry upside down. Um, I know everybody likes getting their music for free these days, but as an artist, man, it, ain't good. It, it's it's upside down. Well, and I'll, I'll tell you, what, I, I honestly, I miss I miss the days where you did have to pay for everything, and in, in, in a weird way, because I, I loved the exploration. I loved going to the record store and and searching for something and looking for cover art or oh, this you know. This has Scott Reader on it. I'm going to buy it. Or this has, uh, you know, Ken Andrews on it. I'm going to I'm going to buy this because he's he produced it or he yeah. plays guitar yeah. on. It. 
And that, that was you one of my favorite parts. And you don't know the credits and you don't know anything. It's just, yeah. And you get no artwork. You, I mean, you maybe get a JPEG or something, but you can't hold it in your hands. It's, that's so weird. I, I miss the old days. I do too. Of the, the double gatefold and checking out the art on albums. And, yeah. So on that song, um, James wanted everybody's input and they passed out like legal notebooks to everybody to write down any lyrical phrases or anything. Oh, wow. Everybody like, sequestered themselves for maybe half an hour. And then we were summoned back into the control room and we all read off our ideas to James. And then he, he started recording it again and just started improvising. And Jeez. Yeah, so that was, and this is still doing you basically a job interview. Yeah. God. And, and I'm like throwing out ideas for the for the record, it was oh, incredible. That's insane. That, I think that was the most mind blowing part of the whole trip. Yeah. <laughs> so the, the day finally wound up. They had a dinner engagement to go to, and I had to get back to the airport. And and uh, they were pretty rusty. They hadn't played in a couple of years. When we played Master of Puppets, there's like the harmony guitar solo, and one of the guys was off a half a step, and it was a total train wreck. Oh. And I said. You know, if you guys just need a sparring partner to get back in shape, because it's pretty shaky right now, I got nothing going on right now, obviously, and I'll come up in a heartbeat. And and Kirk said, "Reader, we haven't heard the last of you yet." <laughs> yes, <laughs> nice. nice. And, uh, I think it was maybe three weeks later. I got a call from all the guys. It was a conference call, and and, and they they thanked me, but they made their choice. And yeah, and uh, James actually called me himself a few minutes later, and and just wanted to make sure I was okay. I was all, dude, I just basically got the silver medal in the medal Olympics. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I said, it's yeah. all good. And yeah. he said, man, your family now. Anytime you want to come to a show, anything, let us know. You got our numbers. Boom. That is awesome. So they well, I mean, they've always sounded like good guys. So you just kind of confirmed yeah, the feelings that everybody. That's yeah, awesome. I get mad when when people bag on Lars. He's intense, you know. He's really intense, but yeah. he's a good guy. Well, that's that's awesome. Um, and it was, it was great to see them with their kids and you know, their, their whole families and just, it, it was an incredible experience. Well, see, and that's, I mean, you, being in the industry, you get to see an interest, a, a side that most people don't get to see. And that's, that's really awesome. And that's one of the things I like finding out about this show with this show is, is finding what goes on behind the scenes and, and, and learn, I guess, you know, humanizing some of the people that I idolize. So, so I, I love stories like that. It's fantastic. Like, I'm not getting power to my computer, and it's almost out of juice. Oh, yeah. Do what you got to do, man. I had power when we started. Uh-oh. Now a word from my non-existent sponsor. That worked. All and, right, and all I, right. I'm, just, I'm glad I caught this because my computer doesn't give me any warning. It just cuts out. Oh, jeez. Something happened to the, the power cable over here. Yeah, I'm glad you caught it, too, because that would have been hard to edit an ending <laughs> to that one. <laughs> yeah. and uh that's uh that's it thanks thanks for listening guys <laughs> all right so um 
so you went from the obsessed to Caius. You've done solo work, and then you've done you, you're in Sun and Sail Club, Fireball Ministry. I want to ask you about Sun and Sail Club, yep. and then uh, then we can move on from there. But for some, uh, this this cracks me up. It's you, so it's Scott Reader on bass, Scott Reader on drums, but two different Scott Readers from the same town. Did I read that correctly when I was researching? I was not born in Barstow. Okay. All right. So that's... That got scrambled somewhere. I was born in Pomona. Right, right. Okay, yeah. Yeah, there's a bunch of weird stuff on Wikipedia. It says that I used to play for Tool. Uh, <laughs> I played two shows, one song <laughs> with Tool. But that's kind of strange to have a band with two guys with the same name. Yeah. And that was the first time I'd ever met him when they came in. I think it was like a joke putting us in the same room. <laughs> um, I thought those guys were coming in to make demos for Fu Manchu. And I was so stoked to meet that guy finally. <laughs> and they whipped out a couple of just crazy pieces. And. When they came back in the control room, I was like, who's going to play bass on this stuff? And Bob said, I don't know. I, I might come back in like a month or so and do some overdubs. And I'm all, how about I take a stab at it? And he's all, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> sure. I think he had ulterior motives. <laughs> so that, that first record had the, the vocoder thing. Uh, yes. It was actually Bob playing these crazy chords on his guitar and basically talking into a microphone. And he, he was doing that to do demos for whatever singer came in. There were going to be these intricate harmonies. Okay. And I'm like, dude, I've never heard anything like this in this genre. And I would rather just leave it like this. And it it, it was decided to leave it. And yeah, the only, I love it. It's, it's so different. The only thing I've ever heard that anything close to that is neil young's trans album yeah and that's that and that, that's the first thing i thought of. i didn't you know I, I didn't put two and two together and say oh that's a vocoder but now it makes yeah, some sense. people loved it some people hated it yes yeah, people like violently hate <laughs> <Yeah>. it <laughs> <laughs> but now you guys didn't do that obviously for the second album yeah then the second album um they got tony involved and then I was really stoked. I mean, it's it's a totally different direction. Yeah. But Tony's one of my heroes back from the punk days, you know. Adolescence was one of my favorite bands. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That, and um, so, and is that something that, that's, that comes and goes, the Sun and Sail Club, or is that something that's just, that's, was two albums is done, or? Um, Bob posted just a few weeks ago to expect something soon. That's and awesome. at, at first I thought, Oh man, they're going to do something without me. That sucks. <laughs> That's news then, to you too. Yeah. But then he was like, Hey, if you're up for it, cool. So I'm just waiting. Oh, well, and now so am I. So, um, and that you've done, uh, you did a solo album, which 
I was listening to you today, and it it's honestly, I'm not trying to sound fanboy or anything. It's it's amazing. The songs yeah. on it are so complex, and and you your singing is fantastic. Uh, thank you, thank you. I, I love it, and it's it was funny because the first time I I had seen a, a they have a on YouTube. There's a still of you, and they're playing the song, and I think it's um, uh, Silver Tree. And the first thing I thought of was, you'd be perfect in a movie about Willie Nelson. Because you, you, you've got kind of the look and your voice, especially on that song, it sounds like Willie. It's amazing. Wow. That's a trip. So, Thank yeah. you. <laughs> so, yeah, that was 2006 that, that got released. Some of those recordings went back oof, maybe 18 years before that. I had wow. a lot of stuff sitting around and I wrote a lot of new stuff. Um, the mastering session was pretty tricky. Um, I went to John Golden, who did a lot of SST stuff with Black Flag, and he did all of um, Sub Pop with Soundgarden and even okay. Nirvana. Uh, um, he said, the best thing I can do here is just look at the vocal levels on each song and get the vocal to sit at the same volume and just let the music dance around that. Okay. And, and once he did that, it, it, it kind of glued it all together. So I, I owe a lot to that guy for smoothing that all out. So you didn't have that as a whole solo project in mind. It was just pieces that you'd recorded over the years yeah. and you just decided at one point, hey, I've got enough to put something out. Yeah, yeah, just bits and pieces. Man, you, you working on anything like that now? Um, I've put out a few songs on everything from YouTube to SoundCloud to there's a few on iTunes actually. Oh, okay. A, an EP called Weaver's Dawn. It's just digital only. Okay. But that has two of my favorite things that I've ever recorded. Um, the song Weaver's Dawn, which actually Fireball Ministry covered. Right. And there was their song As We Become that I recorded for my wife. I think it was on our 20th anniversary. Got that done just before our anniversary. Put it on a CD, put it in a card, and left it on her pillow when she got up in the morning. Oh, and uh, that's she awesome. liked. <laughs> that's awesome. I, I actually that's that has shown up on YouTube. I heard that this afternoon, and that that is a it's a beautiful song. It's Thank very you. very that, touching. That, that's my favorite thing that I have ever done in my life. Right oh, there. That's awesome, man. So. I got to stop starting every sentence with the word so. So that <laughs> so that that's my stop. thing that I have. Well, that's what I end up having to edit out of every show. It's me saying so. <laughs> anyway, you went f- from Sun and Sail Club to Fireball Ministry. What was the path from 
Caius to Sun and Sail Club to Fireball Ministry? Um, Fireball Ministry actually came about. I mean, I've I've known them for years. Played together a long time ago when they were pretty young. Um, Jim Rhoda, the singer guitar player, mm-hmm. was actually the producer on Dave Grohl's movie Sound City. Oh wow! I didn't realize and, that. Yeah, and I have him to thank for dragging me into that thing. There was this one song that was pretty tricky um, with Corey Taylor set to sing on it, Rick Nielsen set to play guitar on it, and Dave Grohl on drums. And Dave had a demo of the song with without vocals, just the, the instrumental stuff. Okay. And he was trying to figure out who the right bass player would be. And Jim actually told him, dude, you should give Scott Reeder a shot. So I was asleep one night, and some fucker <laughs> is texting me at one thirty in the morning. Oh, jeez! I look at my phone and it's Dave Grohl. Oh my god! And he said, "Dude, I bought the console from Sound City. I'm doing a movie about it. Do you want to play on the soundtrack?" Wow! And my simple reply was, "Fuck yeah!" Gee, yeah. And and then he wrote me back and said. Dude, I've got Corey Taylor and Rick Nielsen, and you know, I was just like, "Holy shit!" My first concert was Cheap Trick. And yeah, <laughs> and, <laughs> and it's so, coming full circle. Yeah, the next morning I got up to feed the horses pretty early, and there's already a demo sent. Oh so I'm gosh. filling up horse waters, you know, waiting and listening to this thing on my phone, just going, "Holy shit!" And I, I tried to imagine like an orchestral part. Weaving okay. this thing, I, I didn't want to just repeat what Dave did. He he had a bass part on there that just kind of underlined what the guitar was doing. I wanted to, you know, make it special. Yeah. Set it off, and I had this whole thing worked out, and so I was the the last piece to go on this song. I think within a week I was at Dave's studio, and I walk in, and, and I didn't realize Butch Vig was the producer, and he's sitting there at the console. Hey, Scott. <laughs> Man. I didn't see any cameras at first, but I realized that in the corners of the room, there were like casino type, not hidden cameras, but you know, little yeah. steers spying on you. Yeah, exactly. I saw some of the footage today. That was... Oh, man. So, yeah, I'm sitting there with Butch Vig, Dave Grohl behind me, breathing down my neck. <laughs> and... Uh, I had this whole thing worked out, and it, it, I didn't know if it was going to work against the vocals. I was worried about having to change parts on the spot because it was going to jive with the vocals, and and it all worked out. I got little nods to Cheap Trick with octaves on the bass. <laughs> and, um, there was a nod to Led Zeppelin, like dazed and confused with the bands. <laughs> Oh man! Um, there were a few little nods, and oh, there's a nod to Mary Poppins. Really? Um, there's like a break; it, everything stops towards the end, mm-hmm. and then when it comes back, if you listen to the bass line, 
it's like um, Tim Timoney, Tim Timoney, Tim Tim Um, yeah, oh, I'm man. a Disney freak. <laughs> <laughs> that is so cool. So, and that that album ended up winning a Grammy. Yeah, that that song went to number one on rock radio, Heritage Rock or something. And um, I've got a Grammy certificate on the wall in the hallway back here. Man. So do you keep that in the house or in the studio? It's in the studio. Nice. Yeah, you got to put that where everybody everybody coming in to get your production work and see it. Say, yeah, see, won a Grammy. See? <laughs> Rates are going up. Pretty <laughs> <laughs> crazy. I mean, that was a hell of an experience. That sounds like it, man. That's just to, I would love to see who's in your contact list. This is insane. All of Metallica, Dave Grohl, you know, which Vig now I'm sure that's gonna be insane. Everybody that I that, that that was in my formative years of music listening is in your phone. I'm sure. <laughs> oh my gosh! So, well, what are you up to now? What what's going on? You living in the ranch life, taking care of the animals? Yeah, we, we've got a 40 acre ranch in Banning. Um, there's a second house that I'm sitting in now. That's the studio. Um. Usually I'm recording bands here. I've had a lot of weird little projects. I was playing on this album called The Bassist's Alliance. I did a couple of songs, one with this Russian guy, Leonid Maskamov. Yes, uh, I've heard that. There, there's been some weird projects. I've been doing some stuff with Rob Dukes from Exodus. Oh, okay, okay. Um, I, I did his EP just about a year ago. And he just sent me a demo yesterday, actually, for some new stuff. Oh, cool. Um, I did a soundtrack thing for a name that you've heard of, but I shouldn't say anything yet. Okay. But it's one of my favorite things that I've ever done. Oh, that's awesome. Um, I was sent a demo one morning, and I was really in a cranky mood. And after I finished feeding the horses, I came in here and knocked it out in like a half an hour. Just, just aggro. <laughs> can't break and wait for this film to come out and it's one of my favorite songs ever oh man um god what else Wait, is coming? all right well let, let me ask you a question when is it coming out oh it's i i think they've been filming but it's gonna be a while there's okay so it's not like it, it's somebody that has a lot of things going on it's like an ongoing all right because this is gonna take a few weeks to get out so i'm just saying you know <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That I, I did hear that you were part of something. And I don't know if I, honestly, I don't know if this is still going on or, or not since uh, since Lemmy died. But you were doing the Motorhead cruises, and I, w- I I didn't know too much about it. It sounds completely insane, like Motorhead, Anthrax, and you guys on on a on a boat. I mean, it sounds like something a boat you take to go into national waters to bet on monkey knife fights or, or rebroadcast <laughs> NFL games without express written consent. So, yeah. Okay, that's the the segue from working on Sound City with Jim Rota producing. Yeah. Um, he asked, hey, you want to do some recording soon? I, I got a, a thing that needs some bass. And I'm all, fuck yeah. And I went to his house and knocked out this bass track. And Emily was there, the, the other guitar player for Fireball Minister. Okay. And... It came out great, and they said, "Hey, if, if some live stuff comes up, 
are you interested? And well, yeah, man, it'd be fun. So it was probably about a year later, I got the call from Jim and he said, we got this offer to go on a cruise ship with Motorhead and a bunch of bands. What do you think? I'm all, fuck yeah, let's do it. All these metal bands on, I think it was a carnival cruise, (laughs) leaving Miami, going, I think it was through Key West and Cozumel, Mexico. Oh. It was incredible. Yeah, Anthrax was on the boat, um, Testament, Danko Jones. Jeez. Um, just a whole bunch of bands. And then we got to do the second one, too, the following year. Oh, cool. Slayer was on that boat. Holy crap. Um, we were, I think, Fireball Ministry and Anthrax were the only bands that got to do both of them besides Motorhead. Oh, man. So that was... That was incredible. So how does that work? You, you guys go and you, you play, and then you just hang out with everybody on the boat yeah. like a normal cruise just goer? Just chill. That's yeah. Awesome. The I'm pool to... was always going off. Um, I remember on the first boat, I mean, there was so much alcohol consumed. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. People are going apeshit at the pool just <laughs> around the clock. And we didn't get to stop in Key West at the port, there was a hurricane somewhere nearby. And oh, and the, the boat actually ran out of beer by the time we got to Mexico. Oh and they were radioing other ships to see if they could buy their, their beer supplies. <laughs> SOS, we need beer. Yes. Oh, God. There's going to be mutiny. <laughs> uh, Lemmy's going to take over the ship. Yeah. It was so weird playing on a boat. It, it was beautiful. We played at the pool stage. <laughs> on the first trip and there were pictures from pretty far back of our stage and the sunset in the background. And wow, it's just, it was surreal. Um, On the second one, I remember leaving Nassau and there was a hurricane moving in. There was this huge storm when we were in Nassau and when everybody got back on the boat, we hightailed it out of there and, and you could tell that the captain was, Exploring it, yeah, going as fast as we could away from there. And some people said that they saw this cargo ship going the other way, and they oh. were freaking out, like, "Whoa, what are they doing?" That was the beer delivery. As it turns out, that ship went into the storm and sank. Oh, jeez! Over thirty people died. Oh, see, and I just made a horrible joke. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> if it was full of beer. We would have. That'd been even worse. Oh but man, it was nuts. So that night, uh, Motorhead played before us in one room, and then we played right after them in the other room. And I'm watching Motorhead, and Lemmy. I mean, he was pretty gaunt at that point. Yeah. And and he was swaying back and forth, and I was like, oh man. I was kind of bummed out. And then I realized, oh, we're on a boat, and I'm swaying, too. <laughs> <laughs> it's all good. Ah, that's a good then, point. When we played right after them, I almost fell down. I'm, you know, I'm getting dizzy swinging around. Jeez. Oh, uh, I almost fell down when we were playing. Oh, that's, that's not good. So, all right, last – Last question, and then we'll wrap up, and I'll let you go take care of your, your critters. What's the worst experience you've had on stage? 
Oh. That's a tough one. Um, I'm hoping that's because it, it's hard to think of one and not because there's so many to choose from. I can think of two. All right. I'm all ears. Um, <laughs> you can give me two if you like. The, the lesser of the two was probably um, Caius opening for Danzig in Philadelphia, and it was snowing outside. Okay. And I felt bad for our crew guy that was rolling all the amps in. It wasn't Henry Rollins this time, was it? No. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) And so I just had to bring one of my amps in. And, of course, the one blew up right at the beginning of the set. Oh, jeez. So I had to plug my bass straight into a direct box. And the the Uh, tone of the direct box, the the way I play hitting the pickups, it it was just... It was horrible. Jeez. So that was one. But... When Caius opened for Metallica in Australia on the Black Album tour, we were on that snake pit stage that that had this pit in the middle, and there was this point that went out. I remember that. That's the first tour I ever saw Metallica on was the Black Door. Wow. In Rochester, New York. Nice. Yeah. So the the scaffolding went out, and then it dropped down a level and then went out to the the point. Right. And I didn't have a radio system or anything. I just spliced together a bunch of guitar cables with adapters and duct taped them together. So I'm out on that lower level out towards the point. Okay. My hair's in my face. I think we were playing Freedom Run. And I turned around with my hair in my face. My leg goes through the different level of the scaffolding. Ooh. And I did a face plant in front of 15,000 people. Oh, geez. It's hard to, like, be nonchalant about it. But I, I just stood up and I walked back to the amp all slow, like, yeah, I'm cool. Yeah. <laughs> On and purpose. Swapped out bases because the, the tuning was all out of whack. And, yeah. then, and then just picked up where I left off. Oh, man. That was fun. Yeah. <laughs> well, Scott, I, after we sign off, I'll probably go, oh, man, there was this one time. <laughs> Those are the two that stick out right now. Oh, man. Well, thank you so much for coming on Performance Anxiety Night and, and spending time with me and telling me some awesome stories. And I really appreciate it. Yeah, I, I wish you great success with the show. I, I can't wait to hear all this stuff. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. 
and why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points. 